Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning. Isn't that little bump video cute? <laughs> uh, as, as, as indicated right there, we are uh, starting into a new series today on the book of Ephesians called Being the Church. Thank you for joining us today. I'm really excited about this series, actually. Um, I don't know how well you may know the book of Ephesians, but if you do know it, one thing you may know is that uh, it's one of the most important books for addressing, or at least in the New Testament, for addressing what it looks like to be the church. And so if you've ever had questions about what does it look like to be the church right now, how should I be connected to church as a Christian, what is the purpose of the church overall, this book is going to help us address those questions and answer those questions, among many other things that we're going to be looking at over the next few months together. Uh, The book of Ephesians is widely considered to be one of the most impactful biblical books by scholars, often referred to, it's even been referred to as the crown and climax of Paul's theology. Uh, One scholar actually phrases it this way, it is the bombshell of a letter, and if read correctly, is pound for pound the most influential document ever written in human history, which is a pretty big statement. Um, Maybe that sounds a little bit like an infomercial this morning, but i got to tell you, I'm just trying to give us a window into what to expect in this series. I think we can expect really big things from our study in the book of Ephesians. And as I introduce this this book this morning, we're going to be building on a discussion that we had last week in our North Now message. So if you haven't heard that message, it might be a good idea to maybe during this week go back and get on our website or get on our Facebook page, take a look at that message, because we really began this discussion of what we were talking about in in terms of what we believe the church should be over the next year or so at North. It was a message of trying to understand where we've been and also projecting where we might go over this next year. And it ties directly into this discussion that we're going to continue over the next few months because, of course, that discussion is not one that's a one-off on a Sunday morning. It's something that we need to continue to revisit and continue to discuss, and the book of Ephesians is going to allow us to do that. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that is, is special or, or distinctive about the book of Ephesians is it presents to us really the timeless nature of the church. The essential nature of the church that are the core aspects of what the church is supposed to be, no matter what time, no matter what place we're living in. And for 2,000 years then, Christians have then taken the understanding of what the church is supposed to be and tried to ask the question of how is it that we are to apply this in the generation and the context that we live in today? That's a challenge for every generation. In a lot of ways, it's a challenge for every church almost every year on a daily, weekly, even monthly basis. What does it look like for the essential nature of the church to live out in the place that we are right now? From his commentary on the book of Ephesians, Klein Snodgrass talks about the importance of this and what happens if we fail to do this, really. He says this, The gospel has been diluted. And so garbled by cultural trappings that it bears little resemblance to the pages of the New Testament. The Western church, including the American church, is not the or even a New Testament church. Now we need nothing less than a new reformation and Ephesians as the document to bring it about. This letter requires us to change our inner being and character in a radical way. So, those are tough words to take as an American in the American church. But let's, not try, let's try not to take offense to the comment about the American church here and instead focus on the fact that what he's saying here is that if we embrace the le- this letter and really the power of the words of this letter, that the power of God can transform and change what needs to be changed in the church and in us at a profound level. 
That's the potential of this book. And I think that's the goal of this series as well. We, uh, a lot of things are being reset right now in our world and in our culture. And I think in a lot of ways it's time to reset a lot of things in the church as well. As I mentioned last week, a recent Gallup poll found that for the first time in American history, less than 50% of Americans are a part of a faith community of some, time, of some kind. That's the first time in all of Gallup's research and all the research we've done on American spirituality that we have seen that number dip below 50%. To give you a little bit of an idea, just 20 years ago, one generation ago, that number was closer to 70%, and it's dropped 20% in the last 20 years. That, could, that should concern us, and I think we can react maybe a few different ways to something like this. We can say the problem really is with just those who are leaving the church. They want an excuse to do whatever they want and believe whatever they want, and when they come to the church, they realize that Jesus calls them to live a certain way, and so they reject it and they walk away. And certainly, for some, that might be true. Right? For some others, they may like Jesus and his teachings, but don't really want him as Lord. We saw this happen a lot during Jesus' earthly ministry. He would attract crowds based on his teachings and his healings and people, and he was really popular until he said something like, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And then a lot of people left, right? So certainly, that kind of thing can still happen today. However, if we do a little bit more of a deep dive into the evidence, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that it's not the world necessarily drawing people away from the church as much as it might be that the church is driving people away who had been here previously. The evidence also suggests that the main reason that people are stepping away from the church is that they see many characteristics of the church that they would describe as not looking like Jesus. This often has to do with maybe a perceived hypocrisy, certainly uh, not living consistently according to what Scripture tells us and uh, the way that Jesus models for us. The church scandals within the church among church leadership recently have not helped that. But some others merely just have questions and doubts about the faith that's been handed to them. And in their experience, they've found that church is not a place to work through those doubts and questions in a transparent and in a safe way. Whatever the case may be, it's becoming increasingly apparent that many people, especially younger generations of American churchgoers, are leaving the church because they don't feel like the church is helping them follow Jesus faithfully. Russell Moore who works for the Southern Baptist Convention, observed this in his response to the Gallup study that was done recently. He said, We now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? And what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? Now that's a crisis. Crisis indeed. You may have heard the term deconstruction in reference to faith. It's become a bit of a buzzword over the past few years as well-known Christians have gone to social media to tell their deconstruction stories about why they left the church and in some cases why they left the Christian faith altogether. Now, the word uh, deconstruction just in general means to break down or to analyze something. But in, in terms of the way that some Christians and younger Christians are engaging this, it has led them to leave the faith as a result of their process of deconstruction. And despite the way that the word has typically been used, for some other Christians, de deconstruction hasn't meant walking away from their faith, 
but it is referring to the process that they have used to peel away some of the cultural stuff that they believe is not essentially the gospel. Really all the stuff that they believe is causing us to look less like Jesus' church. Now, to understand how this works, there's something we have to realize behind all of this. Anytime any of us come to a church or to Christianity, we are handed Christianity as a package. Now, within that package are certainly good biblical teachings. Hopefully, the gospel is center in there. Uh, hopefully, understanding what it means biblically to live as a church, and depending on your tradition, you may even have creeds involved in that, statements of faith, those kinds of things. But along with that package also comes, in a lot of cases, unavoidably so, all of these cultural baggage and trappings that come along with it. That amounts to some combination of cultural, moral, stylistic, or maybe even political and social preferences. Now, some of those preferences are not the core of Christianity formed by the essentials of the gospel. An example of this might be like prohibitions against dancing in the church. I grew up a pretty conservative Southern Baptist, and we had prohibitions against dancing in the church building. You just couldn't do it. Um, For some others, on another scale, it might have to do with dress codes for women, which dictate that you can only wear long skirts to church services. You can't wear pants or anything like that. Might have to do with the types of movies or music that you can and can't watch, or it may have to do even with who you're expected to vote for. But I'm sure we would all agree that those things are not the things that make us essentially Christian, and they're not core to the gospel. Many of these things are actually cultural preferences that get attached to the way then that we practice our faith. Now those are just examples, some of the more obvious examples, but there are certainly other aspects of culture that attach itself to the expressions of Christianity no matter where we are in the world or where we are in time that are more subtle and often invisible to us because we've lived in this culture so long that it's hard for us to see the distinction between the two. This is why if you've ever been on an international mission trip and you've gone to see a church, to visit a church that has a totally different culture than the one that you grew up in, you'll notice that you can see almost immediately all the different cultural aspects that have been attached to the way that they worship, to the way that they live, to the way that they go about and understand their Christian faith, right? And of course, it's a lot easier to see those cultural things in someone else as you come in as an outsider than it is often to see those things in ourselves. Now, the reality is, and this is not meant to condemn us, really, the reality is that culture is always going to attach itself to Christian faith, no matter who we are. As American Christians, as African Christians, as Asian Christians, all of us, is gonna, all of us are going to have a cultural expression of our faith. And that's not always a bad thing. In fact, it's often necessary. But I think acknowledging this brings us to a place where we are more aware that some of the harmful aspects of our culture can creep into the church that lead us away from Jesus rather than towards him. And this is where some Christians who are going through this process of deconstructing are going through. They are dealing with questions and doubts that they believe are helping them peel off the harmful cultural stuff and to get to the heart of the gospel of Jesus. Now, I think we might say in that case that deconstructing the culture from the gospel perspective is a good thing if the goal is to get to more of a faithful expression of Jesus. I think about it like this. It's kind of like eating an orange. We've all eaten oranges in here, right, before? Have, you, has any, have any of you eaten an orange with the peel on it? Like just bit through it like an apple before? Well, probably, probably, I mean, I have. I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's not recommended. It does not taste good. Uh, the peel of an orange is very bitter. In fact, if you were to bite through it like that and try to eat an orange like that, uh, the bitterness of that peel actually overrides the sweetness of the taste of the fruit so that all you taste really is 
that peel. And so there's a reason why we peel the orange before we eat it, right? Because the peel is unnecessary. It's not the piece that you eat. The pizza you want to eat, of course, is under the peel. It's the fruit. It's the sweetness. It is what really makes an orange taste good. Now, if you were to tell someone who never had an orange that you have to eat the orange with the peel on it, that would be an awful introduction to what an orange is actually supposed to be, right? Because all, of course, they would taste is the bitterness. And it's likely that once that person ate the orange in that way, that they would walk away and probably never try eating an orange again. Now, I think the same thing applies when we hand someone a Christian faith wrapped in cultural preferences that are not the gospel. If we don't peel that off before we serve it to them, or at least allow them to peel it off, they may come looking to taste an orange that they heard was so tasty and so good and walk away because they only taste the bitterness of the peel, thinking that that's actually what it tastes like. Likewise, if they had eaten an orange, if they had eaten an orange before and yet they come to your house, and every time they come to your house, you make them eat an orange with a peel on it, they're probably not going to come to your house asking to eat oranges any longer. Look, I think the church is the best place to deal with people deconstructing and doubting because church is the best place to put those things back together faithfully so that we can build back a more robust, faithful belief in Jesus that actually responds to the real issues of life that the gospel was designed to address. In response to how the gospel of Jesus should relate to the culture, Klein Snodgrass again says this about the book of Ephesians. The gospel defines life for Christians. But that life is always lived out in a culture, a culture that seeks to also define us. Christians must therefore understand the culture that they live in and must decide in what in culture may be legitimately adapted and enjoyed and what must be rejected or peeled off. All too often we confuse our cultural expression of Christianity with the gospel itself. And maybe you're asking, if all of this cultural peeling needs to be peeled, so to speak, what is this core essential nature of the gospel? What is that fruit that we are ultimately trying to get to? Maybe you're asking that question as a believer who wants to affirm the core of the gospel that you believe. Maybe, you're at, maybe you would ask that question as someone who is in the process of deconstructing, or, somebody, or maybe you're asking that with someone in mind whom you know is in the process of deconstructing. The reality of this is, is that a lot of those who have left the church are people who actually grew up in the church. So they're not outsiders that have never experienced the church. They're actually people who have experienced the church and then left because they didn't find what they were looking for. Again, this is, I think, the main reason why the book of Ephesians is going to be so helpful for us and so relevant to our time. As we engage the book of Ephesians through this series, this is going to be about getting to that tasty fruit of the gospel. What is the essential nature of the church? What does it look like to get to the core of the Christian faith that makes the gospel so sweet. With that being said, let's take a look at the book of Ephesians. I want to introduce a few things to us as we begin in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, it was a letter originally, the, what we know as the book of Ephesians was a letter originally written by the Apostle Paul to the region of what is modern-day Turkey. At the time that Paul wrote this letter, this area, this province was known as Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And at the time of Paul, the city of Ephesus was the capital of this province, which is where, of course, this letter gets its name, Ephesians. 
And at the time, the city of Ephesus was on par with Antioch as only second to Rome in, in terms of its impact and importance in the ancient world. So it was a huge, influential city. And one of the things that was distinctive about Ephesus is it was known for its pagan spirituality and its wide practice of magic throughout the city. And it was all dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Now, Ephesians was also the home of the Temple of Artemis, which is known as one of the, one of the eight great wonders of the ancient world. And so because it was so significant in the city, because that was so much of who the Ephesians were, to be an Ephesian was actually to identify with this worship of Artemis. And in fact, the temple of Artemis, the worship of Artemis, all of this pagan spirituality actually drove the economy of the city of Ephesus and the surrounding region of Asia Minor. Now Paul had a lot of experience in Asia Minor during his missionary journeys. He spent over three years in the city of Ephesus getting the church established there, and preaching in the local synagogue. And the church eventually grew so big and so influential in the city of Ephesus that it began to be perceived by those who were running the town and those who were running the city as a threat to the worship of Artemis. And as a result, was a threat to the identity of the Ephesians and a threat to really what was most important to them, the economy of Ephesus as well. And so as a result, some of the merchants incited a riot during one of Paul's preaching times, during one of the times that Paul was publicly preaching in the city. And as a result, Paul was arrested in Ephesus and kicked out of the city, forced to leave. And so the letter that we are reading, that we're going to begin reading today, the book of, that we know is the book of Ephesians, was written about four years after Paul was kicked out of the city of Ephesus. And at this point, Paul is in prison after being arrested again for preaching the gospel, this time in the city of Rome. So Paul writes this letter from prison, which is really important to the context of what we need to understand about this letter. And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But for now, let's begin reading the first two verses of the letter, which are going to serve as the introduction. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I originally wrote this out, and you may have even seen it in kind of our publications, when I originally prepared for the sermon, I was going to go through like verse 14, I believe, today. We're actually just going to go through these two verses, and this is the reason. As I was going through this, I realized how much richness is actually in the introduction of a letter, which you don't always see in every New Testament letter, but in this one, I think as we pause to take a look at really what Paul is saying here, we're going to lay a great foundation for addressing really the main topics that we're going to explore over the next three months. So I think it's really important for us to sit here for a little bit and think about what is it that Paul is communicating just in the introduction. Because this, uh, these first couple of verses might look like a customary greeting in a letter, and in fact, they are formatted, they are formatted uh, very similar to most of the ancient letters that were written during this time. But there are some key differences that Paul uses here. And it's in those differences that help us see the themes of this letter and what Paul is really trying to get across as he prepares the Ephesians for what he's going to say in the next six chapters. First, Paul says that he's an apostle, quote-unquote, by the will of God. Now, as we move along in this letter, one of the things that we're going to see is that the subject or the topic of the will of God is a critical one in the book of Ephesians. In fact, this phrase, the will of God, appears more frequently in the book of Ephesians than in any other book of the Bible. 
And when Paul uses the phrase will of God, he's not referring to, to it in a way that we might often hear it used. Right? We, in other words, we might often hear it used in terms of people saying, I want to try to find the will of God for my life. What Paul is using here is kind of this bigger picture of the purpose of why God does what he does. So when he's talking about the will of God, he's talking about the big picture of what God is doing in the world. Now, certainly, this might have something to do with discerning God's will for our lives and following Jesus, but in reality, what Paul is doing is painting this bigger picture of the will of God being defined in terms of God's redemptive plan and what he is working out in the world around us. We'll talk about why that's important in a minute. Secondly, the second thing we see is that Paul says that he is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Jesus Christ. It's really important to take note of a couple things here. First of all, that, that phrase in, as in terms of in Ephesus and then in Christ Jesus, are both in what is known as the locative form uh, in the original language. What that means is that it is referring to a location, which we might expect when Paul says you are located in Ephesus, right? You are people who are located, you're living in Ephesus or you're living in Asia Minor, right? But then when we get to faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul uses a play on this phrase to communicate that we are located or positioned in Christ as Christians, which is really important to see because, of course, he's creating this distinction between, yes, you are people who live in the world, you are people who have a home geographically in a place, but at the same time, your real home, your ultimate citizenry, is in Jesus. And a little context added to that, we would realize what he's saying is that you are people who are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. You are in his kingdom as citizens. Now, this is another big emphasis throughout the letter, but this emphasis on the fact that being in Jesus creates for us this union in Christ positionally that defines then everything else in our lives as we look out and we live the will of God. And I think certainly this reminds us of the ambassador imagery and ambassador vibe that we looked at from last week. In fact, later on in this book in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's actually going to refer to himself as an ambassador of the gospel, so he himself in this book uses that language. But I think what this also adds is another picture and imagery to the identity of who we are as Christians. I think about it in other places like Peter talks about this. Uh, the author of Hebrews talks about this. And it's being strangers or exiles or sojourners in the world that we currently live in, waiting for our home, which is ultimately the eternal kingdom of God in this world. 1 Peter 2, for example, verse 11 and 12 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the uh, Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are just passing through then as sojourners, as exiles, but we have a mission in this world to be ambassadors for our king in the meantime. That's what Paul is getting at in this phrase. And so we go back to Ephesians, and before we leave this second line, there's even more goodness to get out of this phrase. Paul calls the Ephesian Christians saints, and he calls them the faithful, each of which refers to an identity for a Christian. We've talked about calling, we've talked about citizenship, and now Paul brings this also critical issue of identity to the table. Now, here's the thing. Through the book of Ephesians, the aspect of understanding our identity in Christ is one of the huge themes throughout this book. 
And it's one of the biggest things to understand in terms of the gospel, in terms of living out the gospel as Christians in the world. What is our true identity? Because there are so many things that are wanting to define us and wanting to give us identity. What is our true identity? We're going to see that over and over again in the book of Ephesians. It starts right here. Paul says you are saints, which is literally translated from the phrase meaning holy ones. Holy meaning made separate. You have been set apart and made holy by Jesus drawing you to faith by his saving work so that their primary identity now is in being set apart as, by Jesus as the separate ones. And then they're also called the faithful ones. The term faithful is much more of a relational term here. And so what you've got then is you've got Jesus, is our identity is people who are being saved through Jesus and saved to Jesus. And as we're going to see, that this is much more than just a phrase that Paul, or much more than just kind of an introductory Christianese that Paul is using, identity in Christ. This is something who Paul will point to over and over again, redefines us as we understand how deeply in union we are with Christ. That to be in Christ and have our identity in Christ changes everything they thought they knew about themselves and everything they thought they knew about the world. Then in verse 2, Paul finishes with this thing that holds it all together, that holds together our calling, that holds together our identity, that holds together our citizenship. It is the grace and peace of Jesus. It is a synopsis of the gospel. As Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 1.20, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. We talked a lot about this last week again, but it's through God's grace that he has made peace with us through Jesus. Those two things go together, the grace and peace of Jesus here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2. This is what makes the calling of a Christian, the identity of a Christian, the identity in Jesus possible. This message, this gospel work that Jesus has done by his grace to bring us reconciliation. So who knew there could be so much good stuff in just an introduction to a letter? right? So much good stuff, and it's rich. I think really the reason why we are spending, again, so much time on these two verses is it prepares us, prepares our mind, and opens us up to the rest of what Paul is now going to flush out through the remaining six chapters. And I think one of the other things we need to see here is that when we're talking about being the church, Paul refers to himself as an apostle by God's will here. And what he's doing here is he's actually uniting or connecting his living out of what it means to be the church and connecting it to a calling for the Ephesians to to, to follow in the same way. And by connection, as we're reading it today, for us to follow in the same way. In other words, he's saying, if you want to know what it looks like to be the church, look at my life, which is a little awkward because we just talked about Paul's writing this from prison for preaching the gospel. It's a little uncomfortable, right? And even though Paul has been arrested for preaching this perspective that Jesus is king and not Caesar, when the kingdoms of this world will bow down to the king who said, my kingdom is not of this world, he continues to write it over and over again in this letter to communicate. Because, look, Paul's in prison, and as you can imagine, there might even be a sense of urgency with which he's writing. I think of all the contexts that we can go through, we can talk about where it was written, we can talk about what's going on at the time, we can talk about all that goes on in the city of Ephesus, all that is important. But I think the most important aspect of context that we need to consider as we read this letter is that this was a letter written by a man who was in prison for preaching the gospel. Because if we see that, what we see, especially in the terms where he's saying, look, this is what it looks like to follow the will of God. It may, end you, it may, it may land you in prison. 
for preaching the gospel, at least in, in Paul's case. And Paul's writing, it seems like, with a sense of urgency that's bringing some clarity to the table. He's writing from a unique perspective. He doesn't know. He's still, he's still awaiting trial. And he doesn't know if ultimately, not only is he going to be in prison, but he might actually be executed for his gospel work. Roman, Empire, Roman emperors were notoriously fickle when it came to people who they saw as threats to their power. And as Paul is a leader of this early Christian movement, who believed, of course, not that, C, that, that, that Caesar was not their king, but that their king was a crucified Jewish man who claimed to be God, it could be seen certainly as a threat to the Roman emperor. And of course, Paul knew that. But in all of this, what he understands is that he's been given this ministry and this message of reconciliation, to be an ambassador of King Jesus to the world. And he knew that in order to do that, he would have to go out and preach the message. And if he was going to go out into a hostile world, he would likely have to sacrifice. He would have to sacrifice things like his comfort, his security, his freedom, and maybe even his life to follow that call. As a saint who is an exile in the world and whose true home is in the kingdom of Jesus. So when Paul says, I am an apostle by the will of God, he is also understanding that following the will of God landed me in prison. And look, we often have a tendency uh, to talk about the will of God in somewhat myopic terms, like I want to find God's will for my life. For Paul here in Ephesians, we see right away that the will of God is not so much about finding some mysterious path that God has ordained for us, so that we can walk down that path to some kind of self-fulfillment by having a certain job or, a, a certain, or living in a certain place or even finding our calling. While those things can function as a part of fulfilling the will of God, ultimately the will of God is much bigger than our individual lives. It's about God's will for reconciling humanity to himself through Jesus Christ. This is the difference between God's will being primarily about the plans that God has for my life and God's will being about the plans that God has to save the world, of which I am a part of. You might phrase it this way. I often think about it this way. It's the difference between the little story of me versus the big story of God. Again, Klein Snodgrass says this, Paul saw his own life as a part of God's plan of salvation. His ministry was not merely a job or a choice he made, but part of God's work to bring salvation to humanity. I mean, if you think about it, it has to be that way for Paul, right? In order to still be writing uh, these letters from prison, it has to be that way. He has to have this perspective of God's will is still legit in my life because if it's all about me and my plans, maybe it's God's plan for me to just sit here and rot in prison. Because when you're in prison and facing death for preaching the gospel, the three to five year plans of your life and goals of your life just don't seem to be very workable. However, if you see the will of God from the perspective of my life being a part of God's plan for salvation, we won't despair when our plans are interrupted, when God's will for my life doesn't look like I thought it would. And this is where Paul is coming from. He keeps his eye on the ball, so to speak. He's focused on the will of God, and since he can't physically go out because he's in prison, he finds another way within this working of the redemptive plan of God to still reach people. And he ends up writing four letters, at least, that end up in the Bible. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're known as the prison letters of Paul. He writes this from prison in Rome. And in fact, what ends up happening 
is that through what he does there, he impacts multitudes of people over thousands of years, encouraging Christians and leading others to salvation through God's word, which ends up being probably a much more effective thing for the kingdom than if he were free to walk around and still continue to do his missionary journeys. Now, the reason he was able to do that is because he realized that no matter where I am, if I'm in prison, if I'm not, Paul says this to the Corinthians, I've become all things to all men so that by all ways I might save some. This is one of those things. He's become a prisoner in this case, right? But he is still reaching people for the gospel because he saw the will of God as bigger than what he was going through in his circumstances. Now, I think it's actually freeing to think about God's will from a bigger picture because it also has the, reflective, or the effect of releasing us from the paralysis that actually comes with worrying about whether or not we are following God's will, as if God's will can only exist in like a choice that I make. So take the example of maybe the bigger decisions in life and how we might assign these decisions to God's will, like buying a house or choosing a career. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, is it God's will for me to buy this house or is it God's will for me to buy that house? Is it God's will for me to choose this career or that career? We put a lot of emphasis on those things. Now, again, those things, I think, are things that God cares about. I think when we make decisions, they have consequences, all those kinds of things. But are those ultimately the first things of God's will? I think there may be second things if they are that, right? We have to be careful because sometimes we may think, like, if I choose this house, then I, that might be God's will. But if I don't, I choose that house, that might not be God's will. And we get paralyzed with this over-analysis of fearing that we might miss out on God's will and calling in our life. Look, the reality is, you can choose that house or that house. God's will in the world is still active and you can still be a part of that whether you're living in this house or that house whether you have that job or that or, or this other job whether you do this thing or that thing the will of God that calls us forward as Christians into the world will not be negated by any of those choices that we make the question then is why is it that we get to a place where we are tend to be so focused on God's will as being just kind of a part of my plans for my life. I want to close with this. This is an exercise, by the way, in, I think, faithful deconstructionism. So if you're wondering what this looks like, we're going to do a little bit of it with the next few minutes that we have. Question as to why it is that we so often will ask this question, and it becomes very focused, where we tend to slide ourselves really into the center of the story rather than allowing God and his redemptive purposes be the center of our story is that as modern Westerners, we are children of the Enlightenment, which brings with it the cultural baggage that often attaches itself to our understanding of the Bible, our understanding of our faith, our understanding of church, and all the rest. It's one of those things that we, that's kind of there that we don't always realize because we've been swimming in this culture so long that it just kind of becomes a part of how we tend to see things. And of course, what was the hallmark of the Enlightenment? I don't know if we have any philosophy majors here, um, but the hallmark of the Enlightenment is generally considered to be Trace back to a statement by Rene Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. What that means and what it meant for Descartes at the time was it was a statement of the human mind as the arbiter of all truth. And of course, effectively what that does is slide the individual to the center of the universe. If I can think, rationality and human reason is the center for which I evaluate all kinds of truth. Now, of course, 
that has led to some good things in history, of course. The value of human beings, uh, the uniqueness of people created in the image of God, an emphasis on those kinds of things. Science and technology and development of cultures and those kinds of things. But just like any other human philosophy, it also has its shortcomings. And when it comes to faith, its shortcomings are typically seen in, in the tendency of Christians in the Western world, especially in America, to make Christianity primarily about us. Again, where the story, the focus is on our little story and what God has planned for my life, subtly, again, placing us at the center of the story instead of allowing Jesus to be the center of the story. And so as a result, our Christianity often becomes highly individualistic, where the church itself is not seen as a community of God's people, where I'm a part of it, but the church exists to serve primarily my needs, the needs of myself and my family which affects the essential nature of the church because it doesn't become a part of, because we don't look at it necessarily as an essential community that I am a part of to edify, to build, to use the gifts that God has given me, to invest in the lives of people around, to love sacrificially. Instead, the church functions more as a group of individuals who are all kind of just looking for what they can get out of their experience. Now, talking earlier about how seeing churches and other cultures can expose the cultural baggage that we carry, I think this is one of the lessons I learned a long time ago when I had an opportunity to go to Africa. If you've ever been to Africa, you know that uh, a place like Africa was not as affected by the Enlightenment as the Western world was. And so in many ways, Africa still has this kind of tribal, communal feel that has always been a part of their culture. And when you go in, especially into the churches, what you see immediately is you just get this sense of these people are in community together. And they're not even trying to be in community. Like, we have to try hard sometimes to be in community because we, our tendency, our default is to be individualistic. In their case, it's like community is just a part of who they are, right? It takes a village to raise a child is like a real thing in, in Africa. You can go to an African village and all the kids are just playing in the middle and you have no idea whose kid is whose kid because they're all just kind of, all the moms are just kind of watching all of their kids and taking care of them together. Translates into worship. Corporate worship is an essential thing and it becomes something where you can actually feel the fact that these people love to be together worshiping. Discipleship, the way they take care, all kinds of things. Now, Africa has its own issues and its own problems. But at the same time, what you can see is it exposes a little bit of that cultural baggage that we, we carry. So as we identify something like that, the goal again is not to strip culture completely from the life of the church, but get to a place where the church of the culture more faithfully looks like the culture of the church formed by the essential gospel, like something we see presented for us in the book of Ephesians. And we started today by identifying the fact that as Christians we are set apart by Jesus for union with Jesus, and that we live in this world as citizens of a kingdom to come. Where our real home is, is where our king reigns. And all of this is made possible by the grace and peace of Jesus for our salvation. And as we close today, we're going to celebrate communion because communion is one of those things that reminds us of all of these essentials. Communion brings us together as a communal meal. It's like a virtual table that we all sit at together. We're all invited to this table if we are in Christ. And what unites us together is our distinct union with Christ. Communion is a great picture of that reality for the Christian because it presents our intense fellowship and union with Jesus as we literally take on the elements that represent his blood and his body on our behalf. And throughout history, as Jesus told us to, this has been done as a remembrance of Jesus and what he has done for our behalf to bring us to this, on our behalf to bring us to this table. 
And it's also a hopeful celebration of the kingdom that we look forward to as we live here as exiles waiting for a permanent home. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 26 where we see Jesus present all of these things. This is where he institutes the communion meal with the disciples on the last night that he's with them in the upper room. So I want to ask you, if you have your communion elements, if you would pull those out now, if you have them at home, join us as well. If you didn't get one, we have tables that have the communion elements on them throughout the room, so you can get up now and grab, grab those. But I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26 in just a minute here, and then we will take the elements as we read. So if you have your elements, we'll give a couple of minutes so that folks can make sure they get it. Okay. So in Matthew chapter 26, again, as Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room, he says this, or Matthew tells us this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we are so mindful and thankful of the grace that you have so freely poured out in our lives so that it is possible for us to be reconciled. And as we gather this morning around this table that you have called us to, the fellowship table, the communion table, we are thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ in whom you have redeemed and brought to this table by the same grace that has saved us. And Lord Jesus, we rest in the fact and the promise of knowing that one day we will truly eat this again with you in your kingdom. And until that day, you have given us a calling. You have made your will plain and clear that as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers in this world, we are not merely passing through, but we have been given the ministry and the mission of reconciliation. Pointing all people to Jesus through the gospel and through the way the church lives in the world. And so we pray, Lord, as, as, as hard as it is sometimes to look in the mirror and to realize that, and we haven't done this as well as we could have or should be, at the same time what we know is that you have not given up on your church. You have not left us. You have not forsaken us. That with your grace and mercy, you are still present among us. Your spirit is still moving us forward if we will just have the faith to hear him. And so we pray, Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you lead us forward? Would you help us to see those things that just need to be peeled off in our lives, in our hearts, and our practice together as a church so that we can more faithfully Faithfully and clearly 
represent the king whose kingdom it is that we actually are a part of. Uproot us from the temporary nature of this world, Lord, and root us in the eternal nature of your coming kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you for being here this morning. Great to see all of you on what I guess might be the first triple-digit day of the year. Is that going to happen? No? Tomorrow? All right. We're all anxiously awaiting that, I'm sure. Um, but good thing it'll dip back or something, I, I think, halfway through the week. But enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your week. Um, thank you again for being here. If you have uh, anything that you would like us to be praying for, we have our table back there with prayer cards. If you'll fill out one of those cards and drop it in the offering stand on your way out, we'll make sure that we get that to our staff, our prayer teams, our elders. We all pray for those requests um, by name and by specificity, uh, uh, by specifically for each one uh, each week. And so uh, we consider it a privilege, of course, to join with you in prayer. So if you have anything that you would like us to be praying for, please take advantage of that. We all have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.